Section 9 of Examining the U.S. Capitol Attack by the U.S. Senate. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 8, Part 2. Department of Defense and District of Columbia National Guard Assistance on January 6th. Part D. As the attack unfolded, DOD's mission planning efforts resulted in the D.C. National Guard not arriving until after both chambers had already been secured. On the morning of January 6th, DCNG had 154 personnel on duty at 37 locations in the National Capital Region, including 40 personnel comprising the QRF stationed at Joint Base Andrews. DOD officials have stressed that on the morning of January 6th, DCNG was prepared to provide the limited support requested by HSEMA and nothing more. As Mr. Miller described, as of the morning of January 6th, quote, everyone had what they needed and had no additional requests. And it was very clear that domestic law enforcement felt they had all the resources and capability they needed to control the demonstration. Yet as the Capitol attack unfolded, USCP and MPD pleaded for D.C. National Guard assistance. DOD officials spent the afternoon assessing the situation, determining how best to provide assistance, instructing personnel on the mission, and ensuring personnel were properly equipped. D.C. National Guard personnel ultimately did not arrive at the Capitol until approximately 5.20 p.m., nearly three hours after DOD officials acknowledged receipt of a workable request for DCNG assistance. By that time, both the House and Senate chambers had already been declared secure. 1. Initial requests for assistance were muddled. DOD officials were monitoring the events and receiving updates on the crowds at the Capitol throughout the morning of January 6. That afternoon, Mayor Bowser first called Mr. McCarthy at approximately 1.34 p.m. The call, however, was not a direct request for DCNG assistance. Rather, according to Mr. McCarthy, Mayor Bowser said, quote, Are you getting requests or anything from the Capitol? It appears the crowd's getting out of hand, and there were no specifics. We didn't know if anything was breached or any of that, but it was just more of a, are you getting requests, unquote. Mr. Sund called General Walker at 1.49 p.m. Mr. McCarthy and the Department of the Army recognized this as the first request on January 6th for DCNG assistance. According to General Walker, he immediately conveyed the request to Army officials. Quote, it was right after we got off the phone with General Walker that it was literally, we found out on TV that the Capitol had been breached, unquote. Mr. McCarthy described the time around the initial request as one of tremendous confusion. Mr. McCarthy and Army officials were trying to acquire additional information from D.C. officials and D.C.N.G., regarding what assistance was needed and what the situation was at the Capitol. Two, Army staff reportedly advised against approving D.C.'s request. 
According to Army records, Mr. McCarthy made several attempts to elicit additional information from DCNG. Around 2.20 p.m., Mr. McCarthy asked DCNG to, quote, establish a conference call between USCP, MPD, and DCNG to help DOD better understand the situation on the Capitol grounds, unquote. Shortly into that call, Mr. McCarthy claims he came to appreciate the gravity of the situation and knew mentally whatever we could bring in the next minutes or hours, we had to go get the authority to go. He added DOD knew there was an extraordinary event happening at the Capitol and DOD needed to respond. Although the call with D.C. and USCP officials continued, Mr. McCarthy left to seek the Acting Secretary of Defense's approval to activate the D.C. National Guard. Before leaving to speak with the Acting Secretary of Defense, Mr. McCarthy told members of his staff, led by Lieutenant General Walter Piott, Director of the Army Staff, and Lieutenant General Charles Flynn, Director of Army Operations and Plans, to take the call and figure this out. Mr. McCarthy explained to the committees that he expected the parties to address simple things. How big is the crowd? Are they in the buildings? Where are they? What did they need from DCNG? How does DCNG configure themselves? What kind of equipment does DC National Guard need? Mr. Sund and Acting MPD Chief Conti testified to the committees that during the conversation, Army officials expressed reluctance and hesitation to send D.C. National Guard to the Capitol. According to Acting MPD Chief Conti, Army officials cited the importance of planning and public perception. The response was more asking about the plan. You know, what was the plan for the National Guard? The response was more focused on, in addition to the plan, the optics, you know, how does this look with boots on the ground at the Capitol? Acting MPD Chief Conti testified that Army officials stated that they, quote, did not like the optics of boots on the ground at the Capitol, unquote. Mr. Sund characterized General Piat as saying, I don't like the visual of the National Guard standing aligned with the Capitol in the background. I would much rather relieve USCP officers from other posts so they can handle the protesters, and that his recommendation would be not to support the request. General Walker also testified that General Flynn and General Piot expressed concern about the optics during the call, adding that General Flynn and General Piot, quote, both said it would not be in their best military advice to advise the Secretary of the Army to have uniformed Guards members at the Capitol during the election confirmation. The Army has denied its officials mentioned optics. According to Army records, after Mr. Sund requested immediate assistance, General Piot, quote, calmly stated that the Army needed help understanding the situation and needed to clarify what specific tasks the U.S. Capitol Police wanted D.C. National Guard to perform, unquote. The Army acknowledged that General Piot, quote, expressed concern about Army soldiers clearing the Capitol building. 
recommending that the National Guard assist with crowd control while law enforcement cleared the Capitol building, unquote. According to Army records, and as described more below, the mayor and acting MPD Chief Conti interpreted this as a denial of support. General Piot explained multiple times that DOD was not denying the request, but that a basic plan needed to be developed before rushing into an unclear and dynamic situation. Army records do not reference General Piot's purported statement that it would not be his best military advice to send D.C. National Guard personnel to the Capitol. Neither Mr. McCarthy nor Mr. Miller participated in the phone call with General Piot, Army staff, D.C. officials, and Mr. Sund. Both Mr. McCarthy and Mr. Miller, however, strongly denied mentioning or discussing the role of optics in assessing whether to provide D.C. National Guard assistance to U.S. Capitol Police or MPD. When asked whether he disagreed with General Piot's purported statements that sending D.C. National Guard personnel would not be his best military advice, Mr. McCarthy responded, at that moment, absolutely noting that he ran down the hallway and interrupted a meeting with the Secretary of Defense to get the authority to go. Mr. Miller also downplayed General Piot's purported belief that sending D.C. National Guard personnel was not the best military advice. Quote, their best military advice is theirs. The best military advice that I take is from the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, statutorily. So the best military advice that I received was, let's go, agree. When asked to explain the Army officials' purported statements, Mr. McCarthy explained his view that the parties, quote, were clearly talking past each other and created a lot of confusion and, as described more below, required a lot of cleanup. Three, DOD senior officials consider D.C.'s request for assistance. Beginning around 2.30 p.m., as General Piot continued to speak with MPD, U.S. Capitol Police, and other officials, Mr. McCarthy briefed Mr. Miller on the unfolding situation at the Capitol. Mr. Miller recalled not receiving a workable request until that time. In Mr. Miller's view, the breach of the Capitol building and the shooting of a woman inside the Capitol building marked a fundamental change in that it was clear that law enforcement could no longer handle the situation and DOD would be required to play a much bigger role. At 3.04 p.m., Mr. Miller approved the activation of the full D.C. National Guard. Although DOD did not know exactly what was going to be required of DOD to support operations at the Capitol, General McConville described Mr. Miller's decision as immediate and stated that no one advised against sending support. Mr. McCarthy conveyed Mr. Miller's authorization to General Walker, directing him to recall all personnel and to initiate movement to posture forces to support MPD. Mr. Miller's 3.04 p.m. authorization was to activate the National Guard in preparation to support domestic law enforcement at the Capitol. 
It was not an instruction for D.C. National Guard personnel to deploy to the Capitol, but rather an instruction to personnel to convene at the armory, get outfitted with the appropriate equipment, and be briefed on the new mission. Mr. Miller understood that Mr. McCarthy and General Walker would continue mission planning. Conducting mission analysis, however, was initially delayed as a result of confusion following the call with General Piat, U.S. Capitol Police, Metropolitan Police Department, and other officials. According to the Army, D.C. officials interpreted General Piat's comments as a denial of support and threatened to go to the media. General Walker confirmed that a D.C. official threatened to have the mayor hold a press conference to announce that DOD refused to support its request for assistance. At 2.55 p.m., a reporter tweeted that DOD, quote, had just denied a request by D.C. officials to deploy the National Guard to the U.S. Capitol, unquote. Mr. McCarthy explained to the committees that by the time he finished meeting with Mr. Miller, they were tweeting, it was on the news that we weren't coming, we had declined support, which we hadn't, we never had. So there was tremendous confusion between 3 p.m. and 3.30 p.m. In that time, Mr. McCarthy had to talk to the mayor, as well as congressional leaders, other members of the media, to tell them, no, we are indeed coming, because there was a perception that we declined the request for support, and that was never the case. Although Mr. McCarthy told those with whom he spoke that D.C. National Guard was coming, he did not explain that the Army needed to complete a mission analysis before D.C. National Guard were authorized to leave the Armory. 4. Mission Analysis After Mr. Miller's 3.04 p.m. authorization for D.C. National Guard to activate and fully mobilize, D.C. National Guard personnel, those assisting MPD at traffic control points and the Quick Reaction Force, began to reassemble at the armory. There, D.C. National Guard personnel were briefed on their new mission and equipped with the necessary protection. According to Mr. Miller, in the time needed for the personnel to assemble, he continued to perform mission analysis, assessing where D.C. National Guard personnel would be staged, what they would be doing, and what equipment they would need. Mr. McCarthy chose to relocate to MPD headquarters, where he could discuss the mission plan with Mayor Bowser and acting MPD Chief Conti face-to-face. Mr. McCarthy arrived at MPD headquarters around 4.10 p.m. According to an Army report, quote, a critical planning factor was to specify unit-level tasks to employ the D.C. National Guard because the Army does not respond to crises as individuals but instead by small units, such as squads and platoons, unquote. General McConville informed the committees that D.C. National Guard personnel were originally assigned to assist with traffic control points, and if that purpose were to change, quote, ideally you'd want to have a task and purpose for what they would do, and that you would want to make sure that they had 
the appropriate qualifications for the task and purpose given, unquote. Another important aspect was determining the appropriate equipment for the mission. In addition, D.C. National Guard personnel had to regroup. Those on duty were stationed at 37 separate locations around the National Capital Region. Mr. McCarthy summarized, quote, They didn't have their equipment. They weren't together. They didn't have their equipment, and they didn't know. I mean, these guys were on street corners. You had to bring them back to the armory. The Capitol was under attack. We needed to put their body armor on, put their equipment on. Tell them you're going to link up at the corner first in D. You're going to be inserted by the Capitol Police. You're going to lay in a perimeter out in front of the building. They had to be informed of what they are about to go do. These guys were 20 blocks away, controlling traffic, unquote. By contrast, General Walker believed that D.C. National Guard personnel at traffic control points had the equipment necessary to respond to the Capitol, testifying that, quote, they had gear in the vehicle. They were equipped with force protection, helmets, shin guards, and body protection, unquote. Mr. McCarthy told the committees that he understood that D.C. National Guard personnel had helmets and vests in their vehicles but he noted that they did not have shields and batons, which were necessary to respond to control the growing crowd at the Capitol. Mr. Miller testified that he was not aware that guardsmen had equipment in their vehicles, but that he was gratified to know that subordinate commanders had the latitude to do what they needed. By 4.32 p.m., Mr. McCarthy and his D.C. counterparts had agreed upon a task and purpose for D.C. National Guard, identified link-up locations, and confirmed key leaders at each site. Accounts differ as to who within DOD needed to approve the final plan in order to deploy D.C. National Guard troops to the Capitol. Mr. McCarthy briefed Mr. Miller on the plan, who raised no objections. But Mr. Miller informed the committees that he did not need to approve the plan. In his view, his 3.04 p.m. authorization was all-encompassing, and that as soon as Mr. McCarthy and General Walker finished their mission analysis, D.C. National Guard had all necessary authorizations to deploy. General McConville informed the committees that, although he did not know for sure, he believed Mr. Miller did need to approve the deployment plan. Mr. McCarthy told the committees that he authorized General Walker to depart the armory for the Capitol at 4.35 p.m. In contrast, General Walker testified that he did not receive authorization to depart the armory until 5.08 p.m. D.C. National Guard records indicate that General McConville conveyed the deployment instruction. General McConville explained that he joined an in-progress video conference and, quote, said you have all the authorities you need to move. You moving? And General Walker said, yeah, unquote. General McConville believed that General Walker had received the direction to deploy prior to their 5.08 p.m. conversation noting that he does not have the authority to order deployment 
in his advisory position. These discrepancies reflect the breakdown in communication between DOD and D.C. National Guard officials, who were all located in different parts of the district. When asked about the discrepancy between D.C. National Guard's timeline and the Army's timeline, Mr. Miller pointed to the, quote, fog and friction of chaotic situations, unquote. General McConville also referenced fog and friction, adding that the Pentagon is an administrative headquarters rather than a tactical command and control headquarters that's actually fighting a battle. And it's not unusual in crisis situations to have times that are not exact. While there are conflicting reports as to when D.C. National Guard left the armory, all agree that it occurred shortly after 5 p.m. Neither Mr. Miller, Mr. McCarthy, nor General McConville could explain why it took D.C. National Guard more than 30 minutes after the deployment directive to leave the armory. Mr. Miller speculated that this time may have been used to provide personnel final instructions. General McConville noted that it takes time to move people and also believed that it may have been used to finalize logistics. D.C. National Guard arrived at the Capitol around 5.20 p.m. Even if Mr. Miller and Mr. McCarthy did not become aware of the request or urgency for D.C. National Guard assistance until approximately 2.30 p.m., nearly three hours elapsed between that awareness and arrival of D.C. National Guard. General Walker testified that it should not take three hours to either say yes or no to an urgent request. In an event like that where everybody saw it, it should not take three hours. General Walker testified that his concept of operation would have been simple, to immediately deploy as many civil disturbance-equipped D.C. National Guard personnel to the Capitol as possible in direct support of MPD. He would have immediately pulled all the guardsmen that were supporting the Metropolitan Police Department, whom General Walker believed had the necessary equipment in their vehicles, and 150 guardsmen could have arrived in 20 minutes. He noted that shortly after 3 p.m., he directed the QRF to move from Andrews Air Force Base to the armory noting that the quick reaction force returned to the armory in about 20 minutes. So we had them sit there waiting until we got the approval. General Walker noted that D.C. National Guard was ready to go before 5 p.m. General Walker stressed that D.C. National Guard was prepared to come to the Capitol. Quote, it is a mandate that all National Guard practices civil disturbance. We are equipped for it, we train for it, and we are prepared to do it when called upon. So if we had been approved to do it, we would have got there and helped the United States Capitol Police, unquote. When asked about the apparent three-hour delay, however, Mr. McCarthy noted DOD took more than two days to conduct mission analysis for the D.C. government's December 31, 2020 request. 
and took less than two hours to prepare a plan on January 6th. Mr. Miller also stressed that it typically takes active duty forces, people specifically sitting in their areas before they deploy, three hours minimum to mission plan, get outfitted, and briefed on the mission. He attributed criticism to either hyper-politicization of the situation or an ignorance of how military operations work. General McConville, Mr. McCarthy, and Mr. Miller also stressed the differences between the National Guard and law enforcement, including that National Guard personnel are not first responders who can show up in minutes, and the importance of mission planning before dispatching D.C. National Guard personnel. General McConville explained, quote, but there's a difference, maybe getting a couple hours or a couple things of doing civil disturbance training than actually clearing a building with all these important people here in contact or in a contested environment. You want to make sure you're using the right people with the right skill set to do that. And that's why you plan. That's why you prepare. That's why you rehearse. And that's my best military advice on all these things, unquote. According to Mr. McCarthy, in all situations, emergency or otherwise, DOD needs to understand how D.C. National Guard would be inserted in the operation to ensure the best conditions for them to be successful. Mr. McCarthy added, quote, you know, much of how well you're going to do in our profession, 90% of how well you do, is decided before you ever go wheels up, your preparation and the lead-up to operations. When the intel says there's no threat, when you're not requested to support, we're not like law enforcement, where we are there in a matter of minutes, that they're postured throughout the city. It takes time to spin up our personnel to support operations. They were remissioned from doing traffic control. You know, these are the sorts of things that, had it been different in the way you were postured for that day, the performance would have been different. But the Guard is normally the last resort in support for any of these domestic type of operations in support of law enforcement, unquote. Mr. McCarthy also explained that the mission analysis must be performed in all situations, including during a crisis or emergency. Mr. Miller echoed Mr. McCarthy's statements, noting that time and resources would be wasted without planning, coordinating, and synchronizing, and sending people into a situation without understanding what's happening on the ground doesn't work and is not effective. He explained that he had an obligation to DOD personnel and their families to ensure personnel are employed in a manner that protects them to the greatest extent possible. He added, quote, So when I see this timeline, this isn't a video game. This isn't Halo, where, you know, Master Chief gets to just teleport himself across town. We've got forces in contact. We have to pull them out of contact. We have to prepare them. And yes, I've been in my share of shows where it doesn't work out that way. And the one thing I've learned is I have a moral and a professional obligation to the citizens of this country 
that when we employ military force, that we do it in a very mature, deliberate, and well-planned way. So that is why I am always kind of like less than 90 minutes. I previously mentioned our premier counterterrorism force in the United States military that has been doing this for 40 years has a three-hour period. The fact that the National Guard was able to move this fast is unprecedented in the history of the National Guard. So I see it fundamentally different than this criticism that there was some sort of conspiracy to slow down the deployment, unquote. When asked the risk of deploying D.C. National Guard earlier, Mr. Miller warned that it would have been uncoordinated, unsynchronized, and not effective. He continued explaining what might have happened if D.C. National Guard had deployed without planning. Quote, I've been in a few riots, and just having people show up without a plan and without mission intent and having understanding of what is happening on the ground, you can just run to the sound of the gunfire, but usually it just doesn't work. It's not effective. So taking that time to make sure you have as much information as you can and making sure that your people, most importantly, that your soldiers have the information they need is pretty much the fundamental nature of these things. Unless you're an extremely well-trained organization that has practiced and trained and educated and experienced at just coming in, and we have some of those, it's not the D.C. National Guard, I just want to tell you that, and it's not a criticism of them. That's not their mission, unquote. E, deployment of the QRF. As noted above, D.C. National Guard has a 40-person quick response force staged at Joint Base Andrews on January 6th. A quick response force is a standard element of guardsmen held in reserve equipped with civil disturbance response equipment, helmets, shields, batons, etc., and postured to quickly respond to an urgent and immediate need for assistance by civilian authorities. On January 4th, Mr. Miller directed that the QRF could be employed, quote, only as a last resort and in response to a request from an appropriate civil authority, unquote. On January 5th, Mr. McCarthy reiterated this control measure withheld General Walker's ability to deploy the QRF and directed that any consideration of QRF deployment must be preceded by a concept of operations. General Walker described these directives as unusual. General Walker also testified that the quick response force was outfitted with all the equipment needed to go to the Capitol and was ready to go before 5 p.m. General McConville stated that there was never an intent to have a quick reaction force going in to clear the Capitol. Neither Mr. McCarthy nor Mr. Miller recalled whether the QRF had its civil disturbance gear available at Joint Base Andrews. Mr. McCarthy also noted that he was never informed that the QRF was at the armory equipped and prepared to depart for the Capitol. When asked whether the QRF was properly equipped to respond to the Capitol, 
even if that was not the original intent, General McConville reiterated the importance of the assigned mission. It depends on what the mission was. Mr. McCarthy also acknowledged that, even if properly equipped, the QRF still needed to be briefed on the new mission. Quote, I wanted to be clear of the concept for operations and how we were going to bring these available D.C. National Guard personnel, including the Quick Reaction Force, together, make sure they had the right equipment, a clear understanding of their mission, and then link up with an organization and contact. So, you know, it was ultimately my call, and I wanted to make sure we got it right, unquote. General McConville reiterated the same point. Quote, but the bottom line is, is when you commit some type of quick reaction force, at least from a military standpoint, what we always do is, ideally, we rehearse it. We have a plan. We have an idea of what we want to do so you can tell the soldiers and the leaders, this is where you need to go. This is what you can expect to do. This is the equipment you need to have. And then you can make sure that that quick reaction force has the capabilities to actually do that, unquote. When asked if he believed the concept of operations requirement slowed QRF deployment, Mr. Miller clarified that the concept of operations provided did not need to be a detailed presentation. It need only describe the plan of action. He also could not assess whether deployment of the quick reaction force prior to 5 p.m. would have made a difference without knowing the situation on the ground and how they were to be used. General Walker and Robert Salasis, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Homeland Defense Integration and Defense Support of Civil Authorities, testified that they believed the attack on the Capitol constituted a last resort, and that QRF deployment would have been appropriate. When asked for his view, Mr. Miller told the committees that General Walker never expressed his view that it was a last resort situation, and Mr. Miller stressed that he delegated all necessary approvals to General Walker. Quote, if he felt it was a last resort, he had all the authority he needed to deploy the QRF to the Capitol, unquote. End of Section 9.